On the second night after Burke O'Brien was murdered, I was sitting in the 7th precinct on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. I was upstairs in the squad room. The hours were blending together. Everyone was so exhausted. Each tick from that schoolroom clock on the wall was a reminder that the case still wasn't solved and a murderer was still walking free. Up until this point, Burke's friend Forrest Bloaty was the lead suspect. But he had been released a few hours earlier. The district attorney didn't think they had enough to prosecute. And Kenny agreed. It was Forrest's word against the one witness who was sure that Forrest had pulled the trigger. But that was about to change. Seventh Squad Detective Sylvia can help you. Now, how, how close were you to this group? Right. Right, now, so when you ran, you ran northbound? Um, what I would like, are you home right now? On the line was a new witness who was about to flip the case on its head. And you, right now, are, are really shining um, a, lot of, a lot of light on this for us. All right, is there any way I can come to your job and speak to you? For ABC News, I'm Christina Kiley. This is a murder on Orchard Street. some information that uh, lends a lot more support to the original story we got from the victim's friend. Um, we've located a witness who is an attorney, but um, it, it, it's going to corroborate the, uh, the story that the, the victim's friend had told us right from the beginning. I saw two men standing on the sidewalk, and I saw two men standing at the top of a stoop, uh, it's like the steps to get into the building. And I saw the two men on the sidewalk, and I saw one holding a gun. That's the witness, an attorney who was on their way home that night. To protect their identity, we've masked their voice. After he got off the phone with the new witness, Kenny described the conversation to the other detectives in the squad room. The very second she notices them, she sees one of the guys that's on the sidewalk pull a gun and point it at one of the guys on the stoop. They were pointing it, and I turned, and I walked slowly away, and then I ran, faster than I've ever run in my life. I had made it just to the, I guess, to the end of the block, and heard a gunshot. He just goes, stays left, and just crosses the street onto the west side. Then, as soon as she hits the opposite side of the street, goes northbound in a run. She books even faster. Now she says, I'm not even looking. I just, I hear this gunshot, and now I don't even care what's in my way. I'm just going. The guys on the street were wearing big puffy jackets. I do remember that. Um, I think one of them had the hood up. I don't know if both of them, I don't remember if both had their hoods up. But I think one of them had the hood up. It was in the middle of January, so it was really cold. So it, that part didn't surprise me. As soon as I was in the building where I was going, I called a friend immediately and said, oh my God, you're not going to believe what I just saw. And I heard a gunshot and the response was call the police. And at that moment, I think while we were on the phone, I heard sirens. So I did not call the police because somebody else had called the police. So here you have somebody who may have thought, well, you know, I'm, I'm living in a city of 8 million people. Somebody else saw this. I'm not that important. I don't have a whole lot to add when, in fact, this witness had a tremendous amount to add. 
This was so huge. Finally, a turning point in the case. But it was such a frustrating one. Not only did this witness corroborate Forrest's account of what happened, they offered new clues about what the detectives were looking for. But this came almost 48 hours after the shooting. So much time was wasted, and the perp, or perps, could be hiding anywhere. Had we spoken to this witness right 10 minutes after this happened, even a day later, Forrest would not have been put into, into the tombs. Um, we would have been able to quickly discredit the other witness, and we would have been on, on the right track a lot earlier on. Burke was from this big Irish family. He was one of five kids, two boys and three girls. And Rory, who I learned was his closest sister and best friend, was there when he died. The rest of the family flew in early that morning. They stayed at a Holiday Inn near the precinct, just north of Chinatown. His father, Mark, stood in the front lobby as the city rushed by him. He looked shattered, dazed. My daughter, Rory, called me from the hospital and said, Dad, Burke is dead. I'm, I'm, I'm not okay. I'm shocked. Burke's youngest sister, Carly, came into town to meet her family. She had delicate freckles, long blonde hair, and looked younger than her age. I was 19. I was at Colorado State University in my freshman year in college there. Um, I was snowboarding, and all of a sudden my phone starts beeping, 101 voicemails coming in. So I called my Aunt Franny, who... um, Tony Burke had been shot, and I remember that I threw my phone against the wall. (laughs) Um, I was curled up in a ball in the bathroom when my uncle and my brother Tommy came to get me. I just really needed to get to Rory. So I got to her room, and she was sleeping for the first time and you know since it had happened um, I laid with her in bed for a while she cried I just tried to hold her the family was in New York to collect Burke's body and bring it home to Chicago they also wanted to do anything they could to help the NYPD Uh, at this point I think they're trying to apprehend two robbers. They'd gone a, the case had gone a different direction earlier, but I think they're, they're pretty convinced that there's these men. There was a stick-up, and, and my son was killed by one of them. To think of him as being betrayed by a friend was pretty harsh. Although, just thinking of him having... To be looking in the eyes of his killer is pretty harsh, too. It was heartbreaking to watch the family at this moment, physically holding one another as if to keep from falling. Burke's mom, Barbara, was clutching her dark winter coat, her tears falling on Carly's head. They're going to find him. They, They have assured us they won't stop until they do find him. 
Back at the precinct, there was mounting pressure to solve this case. And Kenny was determined to bring any solace he could to this grieving family. He was looking for anyone who matched the description from the new witness and from Forrest's original account. Yeah, but the, the, the perp is supposed to be in his uh, early to mid-20s. So if he's taking a rest, we've got, you know, about 10 years' worth of uh, collars he could have taken since the time he was 16. And this thing goes back, I think, five years? Five years, 96. Yeah. 96, 97. So if, you th- if this guy's taken any collars in the last five years, we'll have his picture. The second guy was wearing a jacket and he had a scarf over his face, like a mask. What about this alleged sharp slash witness now? He's a witness? Yeah, he's going he's gonna to wind up ultimately being a witness. Can you ID? No. Well, I don't know if he can ID, but I think he was close enough that he could ID. Whether or not he can, I don't know. Kenny had hoped that Forrest could help in the investigation. After all, he was the only person that they knew of who was still alive and had seen the perps up close. But Forrest's father got a lawyer, and the lawyer told him not to cooperate with the NYPD. His attorney started going to the press, saying how Forrest had been mistreated. He wanted two things for his client, a formal apology and immunity. Give me 150. 150. The whole building's going to be wallpapered with these posters. We have to flood that area with flyers and requests for information. We've got to debrief perps. Who knows about a shooting that somebody did? It was 3 a.m., one week to the day after Burke was killed. Kenny told me this is a really important day for cases. It's the closest parallel to what that night was probably like. The same people are usually home. Their routines tend to be the same. It's the hit Orchard Street. Kenny was getting ready to go canvas those blocks again with the 7th Precinct Detective Squad. Unlike the Homicide Squad, these guys were a little younger. And this was their beat. They might not have been homicide experts, but they knew the ins and outs of the Lower East Side. Police! There was a guy that was robbed around the corner on Orchard Street. This kind of gives you a little We'd been on these streets and in front of these doors before. But this time, Kenny and the team had a different attitude. There was a guy that was killed around the corner last week during a robbery. And we're trying to go through the buildings to see if anybody heard anything, anybody saw anything. Instead of looking for information to corroborate the theory that Forrest was the shooter, they were now after information about the two unknown men the witness had described. Police! Did you hear anything? No. It was an exhausting process, walking through the city and up the stairs, knocking on every single door. I was right there with my camera, still hoping that behind each door, someone would have some information. Hi. And you never knew who would open the door. One elderly man opened the door holding a meat cleaver behind his back. And who could blame him? It was three in the morning. But the canvassing came up empty, again. And everyone was getting frustrated, especially since the one person who could help, Forrest, wasn't talking. This is me at the time asking Kenny about why Forrest wasn't cooperating with the NYPD. What do you think about the fact that the kid who was originally accused is not willing to help the cops anymore? I don't think it's a matter of him not being, not willing to help. I think he wants to help. Um, as a matter of fact, we spoke to one of his friends, and his friends 
sort of indicated to us that he does want to help, but right now he's he's really being guided by his attorney, and his attorney is uh, reluctant to have him come and speak to us or, or deal with us. Forrest was seeing the whole thing from a different perspective. And I had to remember, this was a young man who had probably never been in any real trouble before. And his friend was shot dead in front of him, and he had been thrown in jail for the crime. Even though I didn't get the best first impression of Forrest, I started to understand where he was coming from. There's definitely a reason that I didn't cooperate at that time. And there's a couple of them. I don't think people understand how terrible the experience was. I've never been charged with anything in my life, other than a speeding ticket. But Burke's family, especially his dad, Mark, was getting more and more fed up with Forrest's silence. They saw him as the key to finding the killers, and I understood that too. Here's Carly. The part that was hardest for my dad after this had all happened is that Forrest wouldn't come in to meet with the sketch artist. I still don't really know what that was about, why that didn't happen. But my dad's impression was, well, if you won't meet with a sketch artist, what are you hiding? That he would have known the killers or something, it's not out of the question, largely because of his behavior and not coming in for three months. It it seems to me that he has a motive in not coming in. Have you tried to reach out to him personally? Uh, we've used intermediaries, um, uh, friends of mutual friends of his and Burke's, uh, my brother-in-law with his father, and then several people from the DA's office have contacted his attorney. So I would say there's been 25 attempts to talk to either the father, him, or his attorney. And, and have they been successful? Totally, uh, no. They, they, we've, been given, we've been given the runaround stepping back from it now, I can kind of look at it and go, he was in an incredibly tough spot. He had been accused of this thing and and at the same time had just lost his friend. There was a lot of um, fingers being pointed at him and, and I think for what it's worth, his dad, Forrest's dad, was also trying to be a protective dad as well. But eventually, after many months, even though his father and attorney told him not to cooperate, Forrest came forward. He said he had wanted to help the whole time. My lawyer is doing his job in defending me and giving the best advice possible, but I, you know, basically went against his legal advice and signed something saying, I'm going to go in and talk to the cops and look through mugshots, do a character sketch. You know, I want something to be done. Some folks don't stop searching till they find the truth. If you've got a detective's eye, June's Journey is the game for you. Play as June Parker in a gripping murder mystery as you find hidden objects to help solve her sister's death. You'll hunt for clues in hundreds of beautifully illustrated scenes set in the roaring 20s. New chapters are added weekly. Find your first clue by downloading June's Journey today. Available on Android and iOS mobile devices as well as on PC through Facebook games. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. Forrest came back to the 7th Precinct, the same place they'd interrogated him for all those hours, the same place he'd been handcuffed. But this time, the conversation had a different tone. Kenny treated him like a witness instead of a suspect, and they spent a lot of time working together. He came in and looked at photographs. He gave it a really good shot. He was here whole entire day with me. Uh, he just about exhausted all the photos that we have that fit that description, that age. Was he different in attitude? Yes, it was just an open, free exchange of information. He was giving me as much information as he could, trying to give me an idea of what this guy looks like. One of the things that I, you know, I definitely remember was, you know, he had a, a thin line of, uh, like, you know, not a full beard, but a, a line that ran down. It was a shaved head. It wasn't shaved bald, but it was shaved. The O'Brien family was determined to help the police any way they could, pulling together a reward for information and coming back to New York City on a regular basis. On one of their trips, the family made an appeal to the public for help, along with the NYPD. They held a press conference. Burke's dad, Mark, and his youngest sister, Carly, were there. A department chief introduced the new sketch they'd made with Forrest's help. The police department and the O'Brien family are requesting the help of the public in apprehending the perpetrators of a homicide on January 12th. We now have a sketch of the person we believe to be the shooter. This individual here is described as a light-skinned male black or a male Hispanic, approximately 5 feet 11 to 6 feet tall weighing 175 pounds. He's 24 to 26 years of age. He is the shooter in this case. It was eerie to think that after all this time, we could be looking at the face of the man who killed Burke. It was on a large poster board propped up on an easel on stage, just a few feet away from the family. I'm Mark O'Brien. I'm uh, Burke's dad, and this is my uh, daughter, Carly. It's been very difficult. Everybody moved home, all the, the whole family, and uh, uh, we have our good days and our bad days. I, I think we're doing the right things. It's a very hard process. Burke was a big loss for us, huge. When Carly spoke, it just cut through everyone in that room. She was this tiny little thing standing there. You could barely see her over the podium, but she was so articulate and real, and you could see how Burke's death was crushing the family. There's no words that you have for losing somebody this close to you. 
I don't think that saying that this is hard is, I think it's too cliche. It's not, it really leaves me speechless. And how we stay strong is just by staying together. I, I, I haven't left my house since January without somebody from my family for more than an hour. On that same trip, the O'Briens made a very unusual request of Kenny. Mark O'Brien wanted me to bring him to the crime scene, almost to reenact it for him, exactly what happened, what was said, who was standing where, um, the motions that everyone took, what did the perp do, what did Burke do, what did Forrest do. So, what do you think happened? We all went down to Orchard Street, to the exact spot Burke was murdered. I was shocked when the O'Briens said I could come along for such a personal and private moment. I remember it was a sunny spring day, but for me, it was one of the hardest things I've ever had to film, watching Mark O'Brien relive his son's dying moments. Uh, stays in the cab, Forrest goes in. I was trying to tell him what happened as slowly as I could. Uh, Burke gets out, and then they, they just start walking straight down to the, to the step. Hoping that he would maybe say, okay, I've heard enough. But he really wanted to know the details. And, you know, as a courtesy and respect to him, if that's what he wanted to know, then in fact I did. I get a feeling that there's somebody behind me. Burke's next to him. Burke is over here. Right here. So now as... When I did that for him, you know, I was uncomfortable because his, the father of this victim, it's a tragic loss to begin with. But then to, for this person to really get the details... I know he wanted the details, but I don't know if he really wanted to hear the details. So that whole thing, they demand the money, I give him the money, and now Burke is standing here, and that's when he kind of sort of steps forward and starts talking to the guy. Forrest takes a step back and stands over here. This is the railing. Burke takes off his jacket. He lays, lays his jacket over here on the railing, um, and, you know, he's up higher. This guy is standing here with the gun. The other guy is standing over there. And then, as the conversation unfolds, Burke gets shot. What, what's this guy saying? Or, or who's, Burke, is, Burke, is telling, Burke is telling him, you, know, you don't want to do this, you don't want to do this. You know, give, give my friend back his money, you don't want to do this. And the guy with the gun is telling him back, no, you don't want to do this, you don't want to do this. So, it just, it just went back and forth. That was, it wasn't much more of an exchange other than that. Okay. Um, he lays his jacket on the railing. And then takes like a step forward, or, or moves forward, and then that's when this guy reaches up with the gun and shoots him. And then they split, and then they both run straight down that way. At some point, he, I noticed, he took a step up onto that stoop and stood where his son last stood. I don't know if he knew that he did that consciously, or that was a moment, maybe a moment for him to be in that same space that his son was at the last moment he was alive. Carly was there with her dad that day, too. So there's, like, what, maybe a one-minute delay? She looked like a typical teenager, wearing a bright yellow top, bleached jeans, and big sunglasses. But her composure was remarkable. She held her father's hand throughout the day, and it seemed to give him some comfort. It was just devastating for him to, to one, have the, the loss of Burke, which was so obviously significant in our family um, to be watching Rory in this place of, you know, just pretty broken. 
Rory was the last of the family to see Burke alive. That night left her raw, not broken, but deeply changed. Yeah, well, the word fair and unfair is, yeah, it has absolutely taken on a whole new meaning because this is really, really unfair. This is just not fair, you know? Um, bad day totally has a new meaning. Everything, everything does. Everything's different. Everything's just different, you know? Being, being alive is different. I would give anything in the world to take her out of that position. I think it was, is hands down the most traumatic thing she's ever been through in her entire life. And will haunt her for the rest of her life. And in some ways, I think that It's the only way that Burke could have gone, you know. I mean, there's something very um, telling about that, you know. Those two really always had each other's back, and to his um, to dying moment, you know. This big, tight-knit family was deeply wounded after the loss of Burke, but I never could have imagined what would happen to them next. Next time on A Murder on Orchard Street. One homicide affects the lives of multiple people, three of which have died. Thank you for listening to A Murder on Orchard Street. If you're interested in this story, make sure you subscribe to the podcast and leave us a quick review to help others discover it too. You could submit tips about this case to the NYPD by calling 1-800-577-TIPS. Again, that's 1-800-577-8477. A Murder on Orchard Street is a seven-part series produced by the teams at ABC News Nightline ABC Radio, and ABC News Digital. Our website is abcnews.com slash orchardstreet. New episodes post Tuesday mornings on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play Music, TuneIn, Stitcher, and the ABC News app. You'll find our other podcasts there too and at abcnewspodcasts.com. I'm Christina Kiley.